Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Matthew Wright Show on Talk Radio. Shaking up the afternoon with three hours of original current affairs conversation, unfiltered comments, and irreverent opinion. Distinctively different conversation that's always right on target. The Matthew Wright Show on Crucible of Broadcast Excellence. Talk Radio. Put it on and keep it on. On today's podcast, we asked if Tony Blair's ambition more than a decade ago for half of all school leavers to go to university has been an expensive failure. We were joined by Tony's son, Ewan Blair, who believes high-quality apprenticeships linking the brighter school leavers with top tech firms is a better way to go. We also spoke with a chap called Tom Ellis. He's been struggling to come to terms with the fact that he was fathered courtesy of a sperm donor. He objects to those who are calling for sperm to be collected from dead men to father children in the future. But first we asked if our new Home Secretary, Pretty Patel, is going to offer the disgraced telestar Jeremy Kyle a new job, carrying out lie detector tests on convicted terrorists. Let's have a quick, uh, a quick look at uh, Pretty Patel's latest pronouncements. We, we began the day with her saying that terrorists uh, should face more time in jail. Automatic early release from prison is going to be scrapped for terror offenders, and a minimum jail term of fourteen years as a tariff is going to be installed for, for serious crimes. But I have to say, it's a, it's a pretty knee-jerk Patel's call for convicted terrorists to be given polygraphs that's uh, really caught my attention. Lie detector tests is what we're looking at. Uh, and she wants them to be given these tests prior to their sort of uh, parole, uh, any chance of parole, to check if they're safe to be released, which I guess is, you know, a sensible, sensible thing to go down. Uh, but we already, and apparently we already do this with convicted paedophiles, which I have to say I, I wasn't aware of. But after MPs gave Jeremy Kyle's producers, you know, a rocket up the backside for their lack of knowledge, uh, specifically the huge margin of error that is attributed to polygraph tests, as much as 30%, Then, and how that might impact on, on issues, for, for example, on the Jeremy Carl show, on who's had an affair, who's fathered a child. So they criticised TV producers for relying on the same tech that Pretty Patel now wants us to turn to. Uh, so I thought that in turn we would turn to uh, George Mashke. We last spoke to him. Uh, he, he's the co-founder of antipolygraph.org and we last talked to him uh, about the problems posed by polygraphs under Jeremy Kyle's uh, reign on ITV. He joins us on the line now. Afternoon to you, George. Good day. Nice talking to you again. And uh, who would have thought that uh, having chastised a television production company for using lie detector tests uh, without any awareness, it seemed, of, uh, of their uh, range of inaccuracies, um, those self-same MPs now want to use lie detector tests on terrorists? Uh, indeed. And it's a bad idea for them, just as it was a bad idea for Jeremy Kyle. Um, key reason being that they don't work. You mentioned earlier that uh, they could be inaccurate 
say, 30 percent of the time. But in fact, it's worse than that. Uh, They haven't been proven to reliably work at better than chance levels uh, under field conditions. So it's really closer to coin toss accuracy. So, and I know we talked about this briefly last time we chatted, if they're so wildly inaccurate, and I've been aware of their inaccuracies for as long as I've been aware of their existence, how come uh, your, uh, your, your, uh, your colleagues in the United States are so keen to use them in so many areas? Well, uh, as in the UK now, the, the US government has been using polygraphs uh, for decades. Yeah. And the reason they do it is because uh, the media have created a public perception that there's something to the lie detector even you were thinking that they only have a 30% yeah, error yeah, rate, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they're not reliably 70% accurate. So I, I believe, I believe to be fair, I be, sorry, George, I believe to be fair to the people behind mm-hmm. polygraphs, uh, they claim uh, in excess of 90% accuracy. Yes, they, they typically claim 90% accuracy. We should lie detect higher. to test them, uh, shouldn't we? <laughs> Uh, Indeed, those claims are said, you know, in their personal financial interest. I'm just thinking, just on the logic, the the logic of saying you could use a lie detector test to elicit new information mm -hmm. from someone who thinks they're being, uh, who thinks that they have to be, they have to respond totally accurately. So it would seem that you could use the same sort of con trick, if you like, to elicit uh, real truths from paedophiles. Right, but you can you can only use that trick so many times, yes. and then it stops working. Yes. And the the problem is, for example, with uh, convicted pedophiles, they're used over and over again. Um, and when you administer over and over again a test that has no validity, um, very quickly people who are telling the truth are ending up being branded as liars. And so they look into the polygraph, and they will very quickly realize that it's nonsense and um, stop making admissions and learn how to beat the test, which is easy to do. And the polygraph operators have no means of catching you uh, trying to beat the test if you know what you're doing. Could you take so, us through, we'll, we'll get on to, to beating the test in a moment, but perhaps you could explain mm-hmm. why it's so wildly inaccurate. How does it work? Uh, so what the polygraph for lie detector measures uh, is the uh, sweating on your fingers, right. your breathing, and your heart rate and relative blood pressure. So the reason it's so inaccurate is that none of these measures are systematically associated with lying. Right. You might any of these indices might uh, change due to any emotions such as anger, embarrassment. Uh, fear of being caught in a lie is one, yeah. um, but there's any number of things that can cause uh, these reactions. And so the the main flaw with the lie detector is the assumption that if you show a reaction, you must be lying. It's utterly simplistic, and the idiocy of it is apparent to anyone you explain it to, um, <laughs> as, as I just did now. But... Um, <laughs> So one of the things that the polygraph really depends on is the people who are being subjected to it not understanding how it works. Uh, so there's a, a shroud of secrecy around polygraph techniques. But again, with you know, in, in before the internet, there was some possibility of maintaining that because you'd have to go to a university research library to 
to find out about uh, the trickery behind it. Yes, I've got you. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But, but it's online. You just, you know, go to Google uh, or any search engine and look up um, polygraphs or lie detectors. You'll find out all about the procedures. You can learn the precise questions that are asked, their functions. And you can learn how to about polygraph countermeasures, which are ways of um, defeating the polygraph. The Matthew Wright Show on Talk Radio. Welcome to the studio, you and Blair, son of Tony. Afternoon. Good afternoon. Now, I saw um, a little piece about you uh, in the Evening Standard, I think it was, about a business that you were setting up, which caught my attention because you're... You're looking at apprenticeships, but one of a better phrase from an upmarket perspective. What are you doing at, at White Hat? So we're building what we would call an outstanding alternative to university through apprenticeships. So looking at some of the very best jobs and using apprenticeships to give people access to those jobs. So our apprentices work at places like Sky, Bloomberg, Omnicom, Clifford Chance. These are the major blue chip firms right, who you would right. normally expect to be touring university campuses, uh, skimming the cream there. Yeah, absolutely. And instead, they're taking on people without university degrees in everything from data analytics through to project management, because actually they realise a degree doesn't tell you all that much about someone's ability to be effective in the workplace, and there is no correlation between academics and job performance. I totally agree, because I've experienced it at both sides. I've worked with people who've been to some of the top universities, including Oxbridge, and they arrive and they are not ready for work. They have great brains, I don't doubt it. They've learned a lot of stuff, but they're not effective uh, at first at work. They learn, everybody learns, everybody learns on the job. My first day on a local paper, I was taken over to the magistrate's court and told how to, taught how to report on those proceedings by a 16-year-old journalist. <laughs> what I'm interested in, first of all, of all you, how do you find your school leavers for these apprenticeships? Because obviously universities have got the clearing system and UCAS. How do you find your, your talent? So we built our old uh, our own platform because essentially what we're doing is we're focusing on profiling people based on potential and things like competencies, values, desires, rather than academics or work experience. And we've had about 65,000 applications over the last 15 months. So people Blimey, want to do sorry, I'm, I'm, that's, that's much bigger than I thought. Okay, yeah, Absolutely, and, because, and how, because there's uh, demand for this. So you're reaching out to schools? A lot on social media, a lot on schools. And actually, to be fair to schools, schools are really keen on this. The challenge is, most of the time, teachers don't know how to talk about it. And actually, there is a fixation, partly through league tables, with university as a destination for their students. And so there's a lot of support and a lot of interest. We ended up actually setting up a free platform for schools, parents and teachers called careerhacker.ai that people could access to get information on apprenticeships. We get a lot from referrals. We do a lot with charity groups and social outreach groups um, in order to go and attract people to apprenticeship opportunities. Now, I'm aware from the Standard article that you've got diversity right at the front of your thinking. But say again, so you've got all these applications. How do you weed out? How do you find... You know, Again, at universities, we're told that people make judgments based on your name, your schooling, uh, the area you grew up in. How do, you, how do you find your cream? So we're really careful in terms of how we assess people. We look at things that matter, so conscientiousness, problem solving, attention to detail, interpersonal skills. How? How do you do it? Is, it? is it in quiz form, a test? Partly through quiz forms, through our platform, but also actually through bringing people into our offices and having them sit down and spend time with our team. There's a face-to-face -face element as well as a kind of more tech-led element. 
And the reason that's important is very often we meet lots of young people who don't really know what it is they want to do. God, I mean, I mean, loads of grown-up people who don't really know what <laughs> to right. do. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not that uncommon. <laughs> it's, it's true, but a lot of them do know they don't want I've got, to go I've got, I've got teacher friends, primary yeah. teacher friends, yeah. who are saying that they are educating children today for jobs that don't exist today yes. for tomorrow. So this is, this is such an important point because... And one of the things I, I was saying before is that university, certainly as a one-size-fits-all model, is broken. It's become a monopoly on access to the best careers because there's this assumption you need a degree if you're going to be successful. But come 2030, 85% of the jobs people are doing don't exist today. We're going to see huge change in the labour market in the 2020s. And yet we're still teaching people at university the way we were a century ago. It doesn't make any I guess, sense. I guess it's that university has been used as uh, as the sieve, isn't it? It's to yeah. sort yeah. out. The, it used to be, and, and this is... Uh, 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 it'd be interesting what you... It used to be for an elite, an unashamed elite. And I think that your father changed that, a sort of democratised university. And I'm still not sure whether that's for the best or not. So... I'm not a politician and it's not really for me to make policy. I think for what it's worth, at the time it was believed that the more people who would go to university, the more they'd get access to opportunity. Yeah. But companies are now actively dropping their degree requirements and there is an increasing body of opinion that says academics and academic learning isn't actually that useful. The idea of doing a single shot of learning at the start of your career and then never reskilling or coming back to learning, it doesn't make much sense. And that finally, actually being in this kind of slightly cloistered, slightly unusual academic environment possibly isn't the best way to get exposed to the wider world. The Matthew Wright Show. On- Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Talk Radio. Kevin, you're going to tell us about uh, changes that could allow uh, IVF babies to be born from dead fathers. Yes, fertility clinics should be allowed to take sperm from dead men, according to scientists who are keen to replenish dwindling supplies. Uh, Extracted by surgery or zapping the prostate, sperm remains effective for two days after death. And as long as donors consented while they were still alive, campaigners insist the post-mortem process is, and I quote, morally permissible. Do we know why? Why, if they've consented while alive, uh, the uh, sperm wasn't taken then? Is that is that made clear? Well, I assume that uh, it's just a, an ongoing process, and if if it just so happens that you, do, you you're a donor, so you've maybe you may may, may have don't don't donated before. Right. You may donate again. I understand. I understand. You see what I mean? Uh, uh, nevertheless, current re- regulations do not permit this process, uh, and as stocks of sperm decline, uh, critics say it's time to lift the ban to help people start the families that they yearn for. Uh, meanwhile, well, there are other ways, presumably, of building up a supply. Uh, uh, of sperm, other than extracting it well, from dead people. I mean, I'm just, I'm just asking. <laughs> Hashtag um, I mean, just saying. The protesters do say that actually harvesting from the dead would be impractical and do little to reverse the sperm shortage. But the drop in donors, I think, interestingly, is blamed on the change to the law Go in on. 2005, uh, which requires men now to abandon their anonymity That's if, right. after they reach the age That's of 18, right. children born with, from their sperm wish to find out 
the identity of their biological fathers. And uh, hopefully joining us on the line now, we can go to Tom Ellis, uh, who was indeed one of those people. Uh, Tom, good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon, ah, Matthew. Yes. Excellent. Okay. The phone line works. Good. <laughs> good. Um, I believe you've, you've got some concerns uh, about uh, where Dr Nathan and others are, are pushing at the moment. Perhaps before we get there, you could just tell us uh, about your conception. So you're right, I'm a donor-conceived person, not a child anymore. Yeah. People tend to forget yeah. that once the baby's been <laughs> born, the person conceived in that way actually has to live their life with yeah. the consequences of this decision. Um, mine happened nearly 40 years ago, and I expect to be living with the consequences of that until the end of my days. Um, it has been a lifelong struggle for me to come to terms with this. And what, unlike can, most people... Sorry to jump sorry. in, but just uh, in, in, in smaller steps if you can, what, what, when did you find out that you were conceived from donor sperm and what problems has that created for you? So I found out age roughly 21, I think, which is probably about 15 years ago. Um, and there have been just a lot of problems. I mean, really, my sense of identity has been very shaken. Um, it was really a daily torture, I have to say, to go through life not knowing where I came from, half of my roots, why I looked like the way I did, um, where certain personality traits came from. And finding out the identity of my biological father uh, maybe 10 years ago was a huge relief. But not all people, very few people in my position have that luxury. I was very, very lucky, and it was just a big coincidence. Um, and it doesn't really make my situation good, having met my biological father, but it does make it better. And I really dread to think how people in my position would feel if they found, found out their biological father had been dead before they were even conceived. It's... Um... It's, can it, forgive me for asking, because I, I now have a, a baby conceived by IVF, but uh, I'm the father and Amelia's the, the mother, but I, I, I am, I'm very seriously interested in these issues. Can you, for, forgive me for asking so bluntly, but is not the gift of life that you have as a result of the sperm donor uh, and your mother, is that, does that offset at all... Uh, the lack of identity, the sense of lack of identity that you feel? Well, I think I would say that many people have struggles in life and go through real suffering and real pain, but they can still lead lives that are worth living. But why would we deliberately go about creating people in this way, deliberately depriving them of a relationship with their biological father that they can never have? I, I suppose I, suppose I, I come at it from... A very slightly different angle, which is my mother was adopted uh, after the war, and as a consequence she's, uh, she tried to find out uh, who her birth mother was and I don't think the birth mother was interested uh, and she's never known the identity of her father, so uh, to all intents and purposes my mum has no idea uh, who, where she's come from and as her child I only know 50% uh, of where I come from and I don't look like my dad or my dad's side of the family at all and I don't look like mum so I often wonder do I look like uh, you know mm. uh, my mum's father or, or indeed mother so I know my mum suffers uh, to a degree from, from as, as many adopted people might, from that, that lack of clear identity. Uh, so she, she in many ways feels the same as you, but you do have a life. And I, I, without, I, I suppose I have to pry a little, Tom, and ask her what were the circumstances that led to your mother seeking out a sperm donor? Because your mother was obviously, I'm guessing, desperate to have a child. Yes, I think that's true. And her... her 
her husband, my social father, was infertile. And um, so that was that was a very, very difficult situation for yes. them. And they really feared they would never have that genetic connection to their offspring. Um, and I really empathize yes. with them because I also feared that I would never have that genetic connection to my biological father. So I know it's a very, very difficult thing to go through. But these people are in a very vulnerable position. And being told that getting some sperm donation will make everything fine is really not true. And they, they um, you know, they're putting themselves in for a potential, potential lifetime of emotional turbulence that can never really be resolved. And if you enjoyed all of that, make sure you tune in to The Matthew Wright Show with Kevin O'Sullivan every weekday from 1 on Talk Radio.